0: Gracious and loving God, be with us today as we study your holy word. We pray that we learn something new about ourselves and about you today, and that this learning translates into a changed life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
1: And so, brothers and sisters, I cannot speak to you as spiritual people, but rather as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for solid food. Even now you are still not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For as long as there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving according to human inclinations? For when one says, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Apollos, are you not merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. The one who plants and the one who waters have a common purpose, and each will receive wages according to the labor of each. For we are God's servants working together. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. Each builder must choose with care how to build on it. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one that has been laid. That foundation is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, the work of each builder will become visible for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed with fire and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If what has been built on the foundation survives, the builder will receive a reward. If the work is burned up, the builder will suffer loss. The builder will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? I think of this and this think of us in this way as servants of Christ and stewards of God's mysteries. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. I do not even judge myself. I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, because the Lord comes who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart then each one will receive commendation from God. I have applied all this to Apollos and myself for your benefit, brothers and sisters, so that you may learn through us the meaning of the saying, nothing beyond what is written, so that none of you will be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if it were not a gift? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Quite apart from us, you have become kings. Indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we might be kings with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, as those sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to mortals. We are fools for the sake of Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we are hungry and thirsty. We are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless, and we grow weary from the work of our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we speak kindly. We have become like the rubbish of the world, the dregs of all things to this very day. I am not writing this to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children.
0: All right. So as we continue this letter to the Corinthians, Paul um, continues to admonish them for their behavior. And the invitation, I think, is for us to receive this as an admonishment of love, because he's very concerned about their maturity, that they grow up in Christ. But today he basically says, you're still an infant. You've got a lot of work to do. Um, you're people of the flesh. And the Greek word there is sarks." It has a lot of different potential meanings, but usually, not always, um, but usually the flesh is negative. So it's not always negative. So for instance, when God says, I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh, same Greek word, not negative, just means humanity. But usually it has a negative connotation. It means something like animal nature. Basically, the flesh is just the natural instinctual appetites we have for more, for jealousy. Uh, And the quarreling happening in the community is for Paul associated with them being people of the flesh. And we contrast being people of the flesh with people of the spirit. And uh, in Romans, Paul says that the mind set on the flesh is death. I mean, he says it very clearly that if your mind is set on the flesh, you might as well be dead. And the mind, according to the flesh, is differentiated or held in contrast in Galatians to the mind set on the spirit. But the mind set on the spirit, Paul speaks of that differently here. He just calls it the mind of Christ. And so we ended chapter two with Paul saying, we have the mind of Christ, but now he is speaking to people who still seem to be of the flesh, infants. And this idea of being an infant, you know, the Bible often mixes metaphors because we are called to be children, right? Jesus said, unless you change and become like a child, you'll never enter the kingdom of God, but we're not called to be infants because the call is to grow up. The call is to maturity. And here Paul says, you know, I've been feeding you with milk, not solid food. I mean, it's kind of, I I don't think that he's intentionally being rude or anything like that, but he's basically saying, I've been giving you baby food because you're not ready for anything more. And uh, we recall that in previous chapters, you know, Paul said, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And so I don't want us to associate milk with the message of the cross um, because the solid food of the faith is always going deeper into the message of the cross. But somehow Paul is basically telling them, hey, guys, gals we're just scratching the surface here. And I really want to take you all deeper into the mysteries of the faith. And Paul uses that word. He says, think of us as stewards of God's mysteries. He'll say that at the beginning of chapter four, but uh, Paul can't because they're caught up in quarreling. Remember, that is the context of 1 Corinthians. Chloe's people have reached out to Paul and told them there is quarreling in the community, that one is saying, I belong to Apollos. Another says, I belong to Cephas. Another says, I belong to Paul. And Paul basically writes them to say, hey guys, you've completely missed the plot. We're just servants through whom you came to believe, verse five, but that God is the one who gives the growth. And so uh, Paul has this great metaphor here Um, which is a common metaphor in scripture of that of fruitfulness. Uh, And Jesus used this metaphor, right? A sower goes out to sow some seed, some falls in the good soil, some falls on rocky ground. But the idea is to be a seed planted in good soil that bears fruit. And here, uh, Paul is the planter, Apollos comes along a little bit later to do some watering, and so Paul and Apollos were in relationship. We know that from the New Testament. Likely, Paul planted the community, then sent, you know, Apollos, the associate rector, down to check in on the congregation to see how they're doing. And a lot of people attached to Apollos. Uh, and Paul's basically saying, you know, we're just different farmers, but God's the one who gives the growth. And I love this metaphor because. You know Anyone who's ever done some gardening, and, and to be clear, I'm not a big gardener, um, but you can convince yourself if you keep a garden that you're actually doing something, uh, but we just forget how miraculous it is. I mean, like you put a seed in the ground and then something is produced of the earth and you actually don't know how it happens. Now, you can mathematically assign words and formulas to what happens, but that doesn't actually mean you understand it. And that's how it is with life, right? Scientists can mathematically model so much of the universe and the human body. But, um, you know, what most doctors and physicists will tell you is that uh, there is so much more that they don't understand than they do understand. And what they do understand, they don't actually really understand it. They've just learned how to model it and to, you know, um, uh, correlate certain activities. I mean, how things grow is ultimately a miracle. Life is ultimately a miracle. And what Paul is pointing them to is that the Lord is the one who works that miracle. We're just, you know, we're just farmers. You know, I planted Apollo's water. Don't give your allegiance to them. Give your allegiance to God. Um, and then uh, Paul switches metaphors Um, to tell them that they are God's field. Um, And this idea of being God's field, it is not that different from uh, the Old Testament metaphor where Israel is God's vineyard. And the concept here is that God's people are being cultivated and cared for by God. And so this is a continuation of that Old Testament imagery. Um, But I want to go back to verse 8 where Paul says the one who plants and the one who waters have a common purpose and each will receive wages according to our labor. Um this idea that we all receive wages according to our work. Um this is a common New Testament theme and it makes people like me who talk about salvation by grace very nervous because If understood improperly, it could lead one to think that we are saved by our works, and that is not Paul's understanding. Um, But, you know, Jesus said the same thing when he said, don't store up for yourselves um, riches on earth where moth and rust consume and thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. I mean, the assumption there is that you can actually store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. That that through your actions, through your labor, through your faithfulness, that you can actually accumulate treasure in heaven. I mean, Jesus said that, and Paul says something similar today with his whole metaphor of how every builder has to choose with care how to build. That if we build with durable materials like gold and precious stones, that when tested by fire those materials, that work will survive, but that if we build with flimsy materials like wood and hay and straw, you know, what happens when those materials are put in the fire, they burn up. Um, Likewise, you know, Jesus used a different metaphor in Matthew 7, where he talks about the one who built a house on rock versus the one who built a house on sand. Uh, The rains came and the floods beat upon that house, and the one built on rock survived, whereas the one built on sand did not. It's a different metaphor, but the same concept. Basically, the idea that our life is building something and that there will be a day, we can call it the day of judgment or the day of the Lord, but there will be a day when we are before God and that work is exposed uh, and that there is some correlation between that work and our quote unquote reward in heaven. Now, this is a metaphor. And so we're going to have to prayerfully figure out how to understand it. Um, But notice uh, verse 15, when Paul says, okay, let's just say that you build with flimsy materials and that work gets burned. Paul says the builder will suffer loss, but the builder will be saved. And so, you know, here Paul is saying, even if you build with bad materials, you're still going to be saved. And so again, Paul is highlighting that salvation is by grace and not through our works, but he is leaving room for the idea that our life here matters and that there's some carryover or some association between what we do here on earth and what our experience is after we die. Uh, And so the question then becomes, how do we understand this tension between the metaphor of a reward and the metaphor of a gift? And Paul will reassert in a moment that salvation is a gift, which is why we can't be puffed up. But how are we to understand this? That's just something I think for us to talk about in a moment together. In verse 16, Paul reminds the people who they are. They're God's temple. And um, in the context of the Old Testament, this is kind of a shocking thing to say. Because whenever Paul wrote this letter, the Jewish temple had not yet been destroyed by the Romans. Remember, that happened in the year 70 AD, and this was written in the early 50s. What was the temple? The temple was the place where God put his spirit. The temple was the place where uh, God filled that space, and healing was meant to flow out from the temple. And Paul is basically saying the body of Christ is that temple. It is the place where God has put his spirit. And so because that is true, quarreling makes no sense, right? So what I want you to see is the juxtaposition between who Paul is telling this community they are and how they're called to live with how they're actually living, right? Right. They've been given this great privilege to be the temple, the place where God dwells. Um, Really the center of the world from which healing flows, and yet they're sitting around fighting and quarreling with one another. And we're going to find out in the next two chapters, it gets even worse with some poor sexual behavior, with them suing one another. I mean, this community, I mean, they've got some characters in Corinth. I mean, I... I, I, (laughs) I have never dealt with these issues as a pastor. And, and it might just be because the church was in its infancy, but they're working out a lot of hard things, okay? So in chapter four, Paul says, okay, think of it this way. We're servants, we're servants of Christ. The Greek here is um, actually the, the a Greek word Paul uses earlier in verse five is diakonos. It's where we get the word deacon. This is a different Greek word. It's the same concept. There's lots of words for servant, and the New Testament uses all of them. But then Paul says we're stewards of God's mysteries. And so Paul is inviting them into a mystery. He then, in verse 3, says something that I think we overlook far too often, which is, I do not even judge myself. This is one of the most overlooked uh, concepts of Pauline theology, where Paul says we are not qualified to judge ourselves and we should not judge others. And so if you read Romans um, 2, for instance, Paul really gets on the people at Rome and and he basically says, who are you to judge another man's servant? Don't judge. But here he says, I don't even judge myself. And when we get to Roman, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 13, he'll say, "Uh, I know only in part, I see only in part, but one day I'll know fully, even as I've been fully known. The reason Paul does not judge himself is because he doesn't have all the facts of his own case. And we so often assume that we know ourselves, that we're qualified to judge ourselves. And some of us make an overly positive judgment. You know, we're a little bit too, um, um, we're a little bit too secure in our own goodness and virtue. Uh, This seems to be the Corinthians because in verse six, He talks about how they're puffed up. Uh, So, if you're a little puffed up, you probably make an overly positive judgment of yourself. Uh, A lot of us make negative judgments and we live with a lot of shame and we live with a lot of self hatred because we have made a negative judgment on ourselves. And, you know, the message of the world and kind of modern self esteem culture is that we just all need to affirm ourselves. You know, um, we need to affirm ourselves and make a positive judgment of ourself. But I think the New Testament's a little bit more nuanced. It says, just don't make any judgments. Don't make negative judgments. Don't make positive judgments. Why are you judging yourself? Just be yourself. Just be yourself. Don't judge yourself. Be yourself and follow God. And that doesn't mean that we don't love ourselves. You can love yourself without judging yourself. Now that's kind of a strange concept, but it's true but we're not called to judge ourselves we are called to love ourselves so paul says he doesn't judge himself because judgment is coming and on that day god will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and god will disclose the purposes of the heart this is important what gets judged right what gets brought into the fire to go back to paul's metaphor of building with you know precious stones versus hay It's not the work itself, but the heart behind it, right? Christianity is deeply concerned with the heart. And so a question we can ask ourselves as we study this chapter is where is our heart? What is our desire? We get way too focused on the fruit of our work, whether or not our work makes a difference or not. What about our heart? What is the purpose of our heart? Um. And this is something the Corinthians don't understand because again, in verse six, they're puffed up, they're quarreling. And then in verse seven, Paul says, for who sees anything different in you? Uh, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if it weren't a gift? Okay. So again, that tension between reward and gift, Paul reminds them, hey guys, gals, this is all a gift. Um, But I want to, um, mentioned that verse seven is an awkward translation. Basically what he he says is, you know, what makes you think you're different from anyone else? And this is going to be important because next week, Paul's going to be talking about holiness. And the idea of holiness is that you're, you're separate, you're distinct, you're set apart. And so we're going to find that this epistle is laced with all sorts of tensions One of those is that tension between holiness and then what Paul says here, hey, you're not different from anyone else. Don't be puffed up. Uh, Verse 8, Paul goes very sarcastic. You know, very interesting pastoral strategy. I would have a hard time speaking to any of you this way. Probably wouldn't go very well, but he's being very sarcastic. Oh, you guys have all you want. You become rich. Quite apart from us, you become kings. Um, basically, they have forgotten that they are servants. Paul has used that word servant quite a bit. And this is a little ironic because in the next couple chapters, Paul will remind them of their vocation uh, to judge angels, to judge the world. That's going to be a, a an interesting conversation and a, a part of Christian theology that is not well understood, uh, including by me. But Jesus says something similar in Matthew 19. He says, truly, I tell you at the renewal of all things, uh, the son of man is going to sit on his throne and you who have followed me will also sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This is metaphorical language. I think it points to this idea that we are to reign with Christ, that Christ is the king and that we reign with him. And so whatever that means, that is a consistent New Testament theme. And so this idea of kingship is actually valid. But whatever's happening in Corinth is a perversion of that concept, because they're trying to be kings like Caesar. They're trying to be powerful like worldly kings and not the sort of king that went to a cross. And so Paul points them back to that. And he says, look, we're fools for the sake of Christ. We're a spectacle to the world, to the present hour. We're hungry. We're thirsty. We don't have good clothes. We're tired. When people revile us, we bless them. Like we're treated like the rubbish of the world. And by the way, rubbish is a kind translation. Um, In English, it's really a four-letter word, right? Paul had a potty mouth. He's using uh, bad language here, but but his point is we are treated like Christ was treated and you're not joining in and thus you're missing the privilege of the Christian call. And then he ends uh, chapter four, or at least we've cut it off when he says, I'm not telling you all this to make you ashamed. I'm not telling you all this to make you feel guilty. I'm not telling you all this because I'm trying to embarrass you. I'm trying to admonish you as beloved children. Basically, I love you. Now, you can tell me whether you think Paul loves them or not, because his language is quite different from how we speak to people we love. But he does say, that's my motive. I love you. You are my children. I care about this community. And I care that you get the Christian message. And based on your behavior, I don't think you do.